Fake peasant villages, national anthems, and religions without a god. Today on Footnoting History, it's our top 10 countdown of our favorite things about the French Revolution. Hello, 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 and welcome to this episode of Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. And I'm Christine. And this week, we're taking a look at the French Revolution. Uh, this will actually be a two-part. Yay! Uh, this will actually be a two-part podcast as uh, we're going to be counting down our personal top ten favorite facts or stories from the period of the French Revolution. Th- that's you clapping, I assume. <laughs> um, yes. Are you not enjoying my participation? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You have participation points. Participation points to Gryffindor. Before we get started, um, at what point did you become interested in the French Revolution? Um, when did I become interested in the French Revolution? Well, I actually started off with a really big musical theater interest in later France because of the musical Les Mis, which then yes, seg- which is about the the other French Revolution, right, the which one is much that later in the eight, we're in the 1830s in that time, right? Which then just got me into enjoying France, so that moved me backwards in time to Napoleon, which then led me way farther backwards into the French Revolution because when I was younger, a musical came out about the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is based on the novel of the same name that takes place during the French Revolution. And from then on, I said, well, no, I need to know the real history about it. So I got very much interested in it. How did you become interested in the French Revolution? (laughs) Uh, This wasn't staged at all. (laughs) I mean, I I never actually, um, whenever I was in school, I never actually had to study the French Revolution. Me either. For some reason, I don't understand why, but high school, college, it never came up. I mean, I never took a Western Civ class in college. I used other credits to get out of it, but... Um, but I never really studied it until I had to teach it in a history course. The first time that I, I ever taught it, it came in the middle of a um, like a Western Civ II class, which mm-hmm. was going from the Reformation to however far I got. Usually it was about World War II. Right. Then I had to teach it either at, uh, at the end of an early modern history class or the beginning of a modern history class. Right, um, right, right. But then I also read um, uh, Simon Shama's Citizens and and tried to mm-hmm. read it at the beach uh, one year. Um, I always make really bad choices when it comes to beach reading. Um, yeah. One time, I was uh, whenever I was at the beach, um, I brought along a copy of uh, Georges Duby's Age of Cathedrals. Right, right, right. <laughs> about the advent of Gothic architecture in in yeah, Europe. Yeah, that's, that's and, an upper. Yeah, um, <laughs> like I said, I make writer, terrible though. choices whenever it comes to beach. He is, but it's not like when you're lying out in the sun and you're trying to read something mindless. Age of Cathedrals is not the thing to be reading. No, but nor you, is but you Citizens. Be, you, um, no, but the Scarlet Pimpernel is exactly by uh, the Baroness Orczy. Yes, um, which she actually uh, ended up writing like a book. bunch of books after that that like continued. Did the she story. write? Were they? Were they? Yeah, they were sequels, right? Yeah, I never read those though. I didn't either. And and the edition that I had of the Scarlet Pimpernel was the. Um, uh, you know, whenever we were kids, they came out with a bunch of like uh, mm-hmm. unabridged uh, classics. You could pick them up at like Walmart or Target for yes. I don't know a buck. Yes. Yeah, I, I I read one of those. Whenever I was like I don't know fourteen, um, I was a nerd. So um, I read Les Mis when I was twelve. So this the Scarlet Pimpernel really confused me because she writes in dialect. Yeah. And so whenever whenever at the very beginning, whenever the Lord Percy is. Mm-hmm speaking right. he always talks about lud and i right. was like i 
what are you zounds? And right, I, right, right. I, I had absolutely no idea what he was saying. Yeah, was I just, mean, very, I think the only reason I was able to understand it was because I'd already seen the musical like six times. Oh, okay. So, so I knew, you already knew the, the I, plot. I knew the plot, and I was determined to get myself a guillotine necklace, and it took me ten years. <laughs> You know, wow. when you, you know, the thing is, though, like if you if you go if you go to Paris, there's nothing like commemorating it or or marking it or like you're not going to go and find like this is where we guillotined everybody. Like they don't mark that stuff. I mean, but even if you want to get into like the naming of the places, like they all those names that are there now were changed. Right. A lot of it was imposed whenever the city was went through Hussmanization in right. the latter half of the 19th century. Right. Um, and and they cleaned away all of the, the sort of meandering, narrow streets, yes. which were actually part of a – they were a problem for, for the government because whenever you have those super narrow streets in places like Paris, all you have to do is throw up a barricade. I mean if, if yes. you know our listeners have, have watched Les Mis, they've seen a massive revolving barricade, which is completely not what it was supposed to look like. These, these are streets which are you know four, five, six feet wide, maybe 10 feet wide. I'm, and so all I'm you have to do sure to throw up a barricade is throw some furniture in the street and you're done. Those barricades didn't revolve though. Well, no, no. Or have annoying little boys named Gavroche singing on top of um, them. But... There's nothing annoying anyway, about Gavroche. And he, he symbolizes hope in the future. So please, please. He's the speak. most annoying Gavroche. character in all of musical theater. Absolutely not. Let's not get into that discussion. <laughs> anyway, on to our top ten list. On Yay! to our top ten list. <laughs> I've always wanted to do a top ten list. Uh, number ten is the Queen's Hamlet. Uh, the Queen's Hamlet was a fake peasant village that was constructed for Marie Antoinette on the grounds of the Palace of Versailles. Uh, sorry, now, Nathan, Marie Antoinette, not French. No, no. In fact, um, this was a strike against her because um, she was Austrian, um, and yes. they like to call her uh, l'Autrichienne, which is the how you say the Austrian woman. In French, but it sounds like uh, l'autre chien, which means the other bitch. Um, so, yes. little dig at her. Well, I mean, public opinion sort of vacillated with regards to Marie Antoinette. She and her husband, Louis, King Louis XVI, uh, mm-hmm. were married very, very young. They became king and queen when they were extremely young, um, mm-hmm. comparatively speaking. And so, she always was at odds with French people in general. Um, um, the Queen's Hamlet was, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's it's one way in which in which sort of her aloofness from mm-hmm. the the French peasantry sort of manifests itself, because um, first of all, Marie Antoinette spent a lot mm-hmm. of time not in the palace at Versailles, um, mm-hmm. but out on the grounds in a smaller mini palace, which is equal. I mean, it's not you know, the size of Versailles, but it's it's fairly substantial, called the Petit Trianon. There's the Grand Trianon and the Petit Trianon, mm-hmm. which are, are just smaller palaces out on the grounds of Versailles. And um, it takes quite a while to walk to them. I think um, last time I was at Versailles, it took about, I don't know, 30 or 45 minutes just to walk from the main palace to the Petit Trianon. And you weren't um, wearing those dresses. And I wasn't wearing a dress, correct. Really big, yeah, heavy wigs. <laughs> at the same time, they, they probably would have taken a, a carriage out there. Much like today, uh, if you're on the palace, if you're, on, if you're touring the grounds of Versailles, you can rent a golf cart. Speaking of Marie Antoinette in carriages, I read recently that, did you know, she didn't like that she always had to have a driver. So she bought her own carriage and drove herself around as fast as she could. Really? So she was a speed demon. That's right, Marie Antoinette, future NASCAR driver. Right. Exactly. Well, but see, this is this is the thing, though, is that Marie Antoinette, 
the thing about the Petite Amo, and I probably ought to explain what it is, it was built for her near the Petite Trianon, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like it's kind of like Disneyland. It's very picturesque. If if you're ever in at Versailles and you get a chance to see it, go see it. It's worth the walk all the way out there. It's got a mill. It has a wor- or it had a working dairy. There are a whole host of outbuildings. It has a small artificial lake in the middle with a kind of uh, lighthouse tower above mm-hmm. it where they used to have sort of parties and, and they would go out on the lake and have sort of outings and whatever. And she she and her her maids or her favorites mm-hmm. uh, would dress up as milkmaids and, uh, and shepherdesses. And she would milk cows. And this is what she did to sort of relax and get away from Versailles, was to pretend to be a peasant. Once it sort of gets out that she has this, it does not endear her to the French people right. uh, or to the French peasantry. It also uh, cost a, a fairly substantial amount of money to, you know, build and maintain. And um, the area around it had to be sort of landscaped to make it seem like this village was real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Disney, but it's Disney before Disney. I don't know that she she realizes that it's, you know, a little mocking. In my opinion, she was probably just doing what she was raised to do and how she thought mm. life was. I don't think that she was particularly brilliant and understanding that she was mocking everybody. Well, surprisingly, you would think that this would be a major symbol of sort of the excesses of the French monarchy because one of the things that gets us into the French Revolution is that France, particularly the monarchy, has a cash flow problem because they're absolutist monarchs and one of the hallmarks of absolutism is that you have this lavish spending to maintain your status. And this is, I mean, this is obviously an excess. It's something which is definitely not needed. It's something that benefits no one except for Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that this this petit amo, this this amo de la reine, would have been destroyed. But in fact, only one building seems to have been destroyed in the revolution. The rest of it um, just sort of fell into disrepair. And 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 now it's one of the one of the big draws of Versailles. If you know right. that it's there, maybe it's her reparations. She's she's posthumously getting reparations for the government for all the money she spent. <laughs> She's get, she's she's very slowly paying it back to the French government. Well, That's given right. given how much they given how much they charge you to see Versailles, I would say that you know she's probably making it exactly. Anyway. That's what I'm saying. I'm with you on that one. Well, all of this talk of uh, women and the French Revolution leads okay. us to our number nine. So, moving on from Marie Antoinette to the other women who lived in France, particularly in Paris. There was an incident in the late 1780s where the women got a little angry, particularly the market women. They were poor, and they were very unhappy. They were also extremely hungry. One of the things that they were protesting was the outrageous bread prices in Paris. In, in the several years before the French Revolution, uh, France had gone through a period of bad harvests and, and, and famine. But then it had a recuperative year. But the problem is that the French government still kept in place some very restrictive monetary policies, which artificially inflated the price of the bread. They were, they were literally starving to death. And so what they decided to do was they were going to go and be heard by the king, who, as we already know, was hanging out in Versailles, which is not exactly inside. It's 12 miles outside of Paris. There you go, 12 miles. But 12 miles in that time is not going to be covered in the same five minutes 12 miles would be in this time. No, it's it's about half a day's walk. Right, and these women decided they were going to march there and make themselves heard. So now you've got a mob of angry market women 
who decide they're going to go to Versailles and they're going to knock on the doors and they're going to talk to the king. And what did he do? There are various attempts made to pacify them, and they finally select uh, a representative from amongst themselves to go meet with the king. Um, right. She's this young 17-year-old flower girl. And, uh, you never she underestimate goes, the power of a young woman. Well, but here's the thing. She goes to meet Louis, and you would think, you know, they come to Versailles with all of this outrage, and, you know, we're going to demand, make these demands on the king. And as soon as... <laughs> As soon as she meets the king, she faints. That's a good impression, though, because he's not going to forget that, right? I mean, you may think it's bad planning or nerves or something like that, but it makes an impression. You've just walked all this way, and you've had nothing to eat for however long, and you're very upset. If you pass out, you're making an impression. Well, the, apparently, apparently it did make a good impression on the king because he comes out, he greets the women, and promises to you know, provide bread for them. Well, right, but what what else are you going to do if people are passing out on your front doorstep? Like, if he doesn't talk to them, then he has an even bigger problem. So really, it was quite clever that she passed out. Young little flower girl, I salute you. <laughs> I don't think that it was intentional. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Intentional or not, some of the best things that happened, happened not on purpose. But, you know, let's talk about the women who like to break into people's hotel rooms. Because that's fun, right? I mean, you've got women who so they need to get money. So what are they going to do, Nathan? Ask me. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? What are they going to do, Christine? That's right. They're going to disguise as if they're delivering things. Then they're going to go give them to people and then demand money for it. Going to somebody's house and delivering a pizza and then telling them they owe you $1,000 for a pizza they didn't order. Supposedly, that even happened to the king's brother. Not with a pizza, though. I'm thinking it was probably flowers or something. This is like the people whenever you're underneath the Eiffel Tower who go up, hand you a rose, and then demand money for it. Ugh. Well, this is, I mean, women play a major role throughout the French Revolution, though this is sometimes really sort of downplayed. Um, but there there are women like, um, for instance, Olympe de Gouges. Whenever the uh, National Assembly creates the Declaration mm-hmm. of the Rights of Man and Citizen, mm-hmm. um, she will write as a response the Declaration of the Rights of Women and Citizenesses, mm-hmm. um, sort of implicating the fact that, you know, women have been left out of the French Revolution. Um, I think she's eventually guillotined. Wasn't everybody. But there are all these um, sort of women who are playing integral roles sort of in the background. Another way in which um, women are playing a role in the French Revolution is our number eight pick for our list, which is cafe culture. I don't really know that this was so much playing a role in the French Revolution as it was reaping the benefits of it. And it was considered the golden era of cafes. You could pretty much find a cafe for anything you wanted. They started to become popular because you had people like the National Guardsmen. I mean, these people, they came in from the provinces. They had nowhere to go, so they'd set themselves up in a cafe for the day, and they would hang out. You had cool cafes that everybody wanted to go to. The women got to have a fun time as well. And they became, I guess you could say, the French equivalent of the English tavern. Well, also, cafes are cafes were extremely important in the mid-18th century for the propagation of Enlightenment thought because people would get around, right. sit in a coffee house, and read newspapers. But the interesting so, thing, though, is you know, during the French Revolution, you can go and find yourself the cafe where the people hang out who have the same opinions that you already have, which could be a good thing if you know where you want to go, but it could be a really bad thing if you stumble into the wrong place and start spouting off things that, you know, nobody really wants to hear you say. Right. They're kind of like social, they're kind of like social clubs. Yes. 
Exactly. I mean, but there were some really cool ones. I would have really liked to have gone to the one that was in the Palais Royale where they could pump the, the coffee up into your table directly from the kitchen. I mean, that would have been interesting. So that's just a purely social aspect as opposed to a political <laughs> one because you had to have fun at the same time as you were having deep intellectual conversations about the rising price of bread and the annoyance of university students wanting to guillotine everybody. Well, and women women also ran them. Uh, the Café de Bain Chinois, the Chinese bath cafe, which sounds kind of... I that sounds like a brothel. That, that sounds like a brothel front. It does sound like a brothel front, but I don't think that it was necessarily. But, you know, it doesn't matter, does it? If you could get coffee there, it counts. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You, the proprietor of some of the cafes were actually guardsmen themselves. So it's a conversation of the people. Your point about soldiers brings us to number seven on our list. It does. Uh, the story of the, uh, the Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem. Uh, it was composed in 1792 by Claude-Joseph Rouget de Lille. So after the revolution is already in swing. After the revolution is not- already in swing. And actually, it wasn't in response to the French Revolution. Uh, it was response right. to the fact that the Kingdom of Prussia, which is the area around modern-day Berlin uh, in Germany, and their allies, the Austrians, had declared war on France and was attempting to uh, invade. Um, partly this is because France was in the process of going through a revolution. Uh, and so okay. suspicion suspicion was flying around uh, around Paris that the Prussians were invading in order to sort of restore Louis and Marie Antoinette to their full absolutist power and to do away with all of sort of the, uh, the revolutionary reforms because right. the Prussians were afraid that if the revolution happens in France, it's just a matter of time before it happens here as well in Prussia. So what happens is that in 1792, the mayor of Strasbourg asks Delisle if he will compose a song that's a little bit more marchable than what had sort of been the anthem of the French Revolution, which is uh, Ça ira. Ça ira. The problem is that Ça ira is, is a little hard to march to. Right. Um, it's it a catchy a, song. It is a catchy it's song. It's very catchy. It's very catchy. It's um, definitely catchy. My favorite not- is there's, there's a movie, uh, movie about the French Revolution starring... Um, Edith Piaf, in uh-huh. which she sings the Saira, like on right. top of the gate. She's she's right. on top of the gate screaming the Saira. I'm, anyway, I'm the, sure that that actually happens in lots of places. <laughs> no, it's the type is, of song that you would sing more than you would march to because the beat of it doesn't really work. No. So he composes this song, which the the title in French is the Song of War for the Army of, of the Rhine. And it, it becomes incredibly popular. So how does it get the name the Marseillaise? Which is nothing to do with the Rhine. Well, it's on the opposite side of, of, of France from the Rhine. Right. It's in the south. So how does this happen? Well, there's a regiment from Marseille who sing the song. It gets associated with them, and so it becomes known as the Marseillaise, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Marseille. It's a really mm-hmm. bizarre song to have as your national anthem. Because the the lyrics are actually about the Prussians and the Austrians, and remember Marie Antoinette is Austrian, and they're coming in to invade, and actually the lyrics talk about how they're going to kill your children, how they want to murder you. And so the chorus to the Marseillaise, um, to arm citizens, form your battalions, 
March, March. The blood of our enemies. I'm translating loosely here, but the blood of our enemies will water the fe- the furrows of our fields. Well, at least that's like saying we're awesome and and we are going to rule you. I know, but it's, it's, this it's, is you're still right. no, the it, French. It, it, this is still the French national anthem. Right, but you would think that it's not meant to be taken literally. Uh, it's just a little disconcerting how you know at every Olympic game and soccer match, whenever they play the French national anthem, basically they're calling for your blood. <laughs> well, you know what? They're they're sending out a warning. <laughs> Don't screw with us. Exactly. <laughs> Which brings us to our number six. Um, it actually doesn't bring us to it at all, but let's go to number six anyway. <laughs> Uh, number six on our countdown is the cult of reason. So the French Revolution, one of its main sort of beefs is with the Catholic Church uh, because the Catholic Church had a considerable amount of political power in France. And one of the things that the French Revolution will do, well, first of all, the French Revolution sees itself very much in line with the Enlightenment. It will do a couple of a lot of things to curb the power, influence, and even the beliefs of the Catholic Church. The first sort of major step that they take is essentially forcing Louis the Sixteenth to sign a document known as the Civil Constitution to the Clergy in 1792. Mm-hmm. The Civil Constitution to the Clergy, sort of in short, makes all clergymen state employees. It also made it possible for people to to do things like elect their local parish priest and it kind of turns the church into a, a branch or a department of the government. Um, once the revolution is in full swing, however, uh, well, the, after they force Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI to abdicate the throne, uh, which is in November of 1792, they will begin to sort of do away with the Catholic Church even more. Um, uh-huh. And a lot of churches across France sort of get stripped of all of their decorations, and a bunch of churches are transformed into temples to reason, like the abstract concept of reason, which is a huge thing in right. the Enlightenment. It's a central, it's yeah. a central part of the Enlightenment. It, they begin to develop this cult of reason um, and the veneration of reason. In November of 1793, uh, they, estab- they create this this celebration of reason mm-hmm. at the Cathedral of Notre-Dame in Paris. And they sort of, I mean, it's it's kind of like a, not a mass, but a, a public ritual, a public festival to celebrate right. reason. Right. Um, and, it, and it follows the old process of using Christianity to replace paganism by re- using reason to replace Christianity. Exactly. The revolutionary government will actually create a lot of public celebrations and public mm-hmm. festivals mm-hmm. to replace old Catholic um uh, Catholic festivals, things like Saints Days and Feast Days. We'll get into that a little bit more in a bit. But one of the things that they do is they set up um, a processional that goes around various places in in Paris and they sort of have uh, public rituals. It's it's a lot like um, the Stations of the Cross or a mini pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. They move Voltaire's body into a new crypt uh, or into a new grave. And so it's well, kind of like Voltaire the transition. Voltaire was considered Voltaire was I mean, he's, the the guy. Yeah, he's the model of the Enlightenment. And so they essentially what they do is they tr- they translate his relics, like, right. like the translation of a saint's body. The problem is that that Voltaire was a, a deist. You know, this belief in the the watchmaker God, the absentee God, that God sets the universe in motion and then just sort of steps back from it, and doesn't touch it. Right. Um, Wonder how he would have felt about the removal of God completely. I don't know. Um, he, he was always against established institutionalized religion. He believed that religion should be right. a private 
thing, right? Right. Robespierre was not necessarily a huge fan of the cult of reason. Um, Robespierre kind of wanted to keep, if not Christianity, at least monotheism in the picture. And eventually right. he supplants um, the cult of reason with his own sort of creation, the cult of the supreme being. Oh, the supreme um, being. <laughs> which is just sort of this vague... Robespierre was all about virtue without really ever defining what it meant other than civic virtue. Um, and that's what the cult of the supreme being was supposed to be about. It was, it was supposed to be about encouraging the civic virtue and being loyal to, to the French state. It's going backwards from this, the cult of reason, which was completely atheistic. I mean, there, there's the goddess reason, but it's not understood to be a goddess in so much as, you know, the abstract concept of reason. Um, but he's now moving back towards theism, which some people have a problem with. But the other thing is that there's not a fully fleshed out theology. It's just we believe in God and civic virtue. Okay, so how does that give us uh, an overriding morality? Um, well, actually, it's in, but it's interesting with that because when they had all their big parades, right? What they used to do was they would create a statue of atheism or something that symbolized atheism, and they would set it on fire. So, what is that? What is that supposed to actually symbolize? Right. Well, I mean, if, the, if, the, if, you're, if you're moving back towards deism and you're setting fire to a statue of atheism, this is this is the festival of the supreme being. Yes. Uh huh. Well, I mean, he organizes. He he first declares the existence of this cult in May. He organizes uh-huh. this this festival of the supreme being in June. And actually, the festival was designed by the artist uh, Jacques Louis David. Who, who famously painted all the way through the French Revolution and will do some of the most mm-hmm. famous portraits of, of Napoleon. Yep. Um, and about a month and a half after the Festival of the Supreme Being, Robespierre's dead. The revolutionary government has collapsed in upon itself. Um, Robespierre is eventually arrested and himself is sentenced to the guillotine, not before he botches his own suicide or what we think was his own suicide, whenever the whenever they come to arrest him, they find him with um, his jaw shattered because mm-hmm. by, a, by a bullet. So we think he attempted to commit suicide and failed. How you fail suicide with a gun to your own head, I don't know. But Well, to, let's give him some leeway. Guns back then were not as reliable. And if he was nervous, as yeah, he, true, he would be, it could have easily <laughs> misfired. Or maybe he changed his mind at the last minute, but he'd already... Kind of committed. Yeah. Um, so with Robespierre's uh, death, I mean, the, the cult of reason, well, mm-hmm. both the cult of reason, which had already disappeared uh, right. a couple of months before, and right. the cult of the supreme being, neither of them is terribly popular. And so they just sort of vanish. Um, they're not formally that, outlawed, though, until Napoleon, I think. Right, because that doesn't bring the Catholic Church back. It just leaves them in a sort of fluctuating state of non-religion. Right, it leaves them in limbo. And, and Napoleon will, will actively seek to bring the Catholic Church back into Right, but that's not until after 1800. France. Right. The Catholic Church doesn't come back until after 1800. Right. This has been Footnoting History. If you liked our podcast, be sure to check us out on the web at footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as information about upcoming podcasts. Join us next week, when we'll be talking about British imperialism and the first English detective novel. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!